Good morning, good morning, Foundation Church. It's so good to be back with you again another Sunday. Uh, I apologize if you thought Aaron was back today. Uh, you're stuck with me one more Sunday. I promise he'll be back up here at this time uh, next Sunday. Um, but I get to uh, start us in a little bit of the structure that we kind of outlined at the um, end of our last uh, session together. Um, Today, we are going to start um, by talking about pausing as it relates to prayer. Um, I want to bring up just one of, the, one of the graphs that we discussed last week, if I can. Um, it's, the, the, it's the graphic that shows us, based on those 14,000 people that were interviewed that we discussed last week, um, what are the biggest barriers to prayer. And as you can see, 50, 57% were... Um, found that distraction was a barrier to prayer. Uh, 15% were uh, overcome with indifference. 15% were overcome with busyness. And all in all, I would kind of group all of those as distraction. Uh, distraction is kind of an umbrella. So essentially, um, you know, 70, 72% in total were distracted out of a prayer life. And again, if you tag on that 15% of indifference, we're distracted by our indifference from prayer. That's a total of 87%. So that's a, a big deal. So the antidote to distraction is to pause. So our structure, pause, rejoice, ask, yield. Clever, right? P-R-A-Y. Pause, rejoice, ask, yield. Today, we're going to focus on pause. So if you guys will stand with me, uh, we're going to read the base scripture uh, for today's message. It is Psalm 46, and I'm going to read it in its entirety because it's just lovely. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it. When the morning dawns, the nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolation he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for the ancient truth penned by David that's echoed into our present, Lord. And God, I pray that this morning as we gather that we would find stillness in your presence, and know who you are. 
minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Three of the things that I find most beautiful in life are literature, music, and nature. Now, there are probably people in here who might not find those things quite as beautiful as I do, but bear with me. Um, I can personally experience God and his creative power in these media. Did anybody ever have to read William Faulkner? I'm glad nobody's raising their hands. You should never have to read William Faulkner. But I, was, I had to read a William Faulkner novel called As I Lay Dying when I was a high schooler. And um, I think it was aptly named because I die a little every time I think about having to read that thing. But um, I wanted to bring up William Faulkner because he was made famous for something that's pretty terrible. He was famous for how long his sentences were. And in 1983, he made the Guinness Book of World Records for a sentence that he put in Absalom, Absalom. And if anybody studied the Bible, anybody who writes a book about Absalom should be written from history, written out of history. Absalom was David's son, and he was heinous and terrible. Anyway, the sentence that made the Guinness Book of World Records in 1983 was 1,288 words long. That is a lot of words. He was famous for run-on sentences. Anybody ever get dinged in English for writing a run-on sentence? Because I feel like my, yes, Chris in the back, I feel like my English teacher exhausted red pen after red pen after red pen saying, this is a run-on sentence, this is a run-on sentence, this is a run-on sentence. And that same teacher was the same teacher who said, oh, William Faulkner's wonderful. No, he's not. You ding me for run-on sentences and you celebrate his. No. So a run-on sentence, the definition of a run-on sentence is the joining of multiple clauses, usually at least two, in Faulkner's case, like 22, and they run together without proper punctuation or appropriate conjunctions or pauses. Or when two or more independent clauses are connected improperly. No periods, no pauses, just a stream of words not held together as they ought. Hold that thought. Let's move to music. To have music that moves rather than noise or just a steady monotonous beat. Rests and pauses and notes must be introduced to have rhythm. Per music theory. Music is a temporal or time-dependent art. So organizing time is essential for Western musical notation. If anybody, anybody familiar with avant-garde jazz, I'm going to hate on it too, just like it's right up there with William Faulkner. Guys like John Cage and, uh, and Sun Ra, it is just noise. There is no organization. There, is no pa- there are no pauses. It is just noise. Some people may appreciate that. Thank you. I'm glad that you do. I don't. Um, But anyway, it is just noise. There's no pause. There's no rhythm to it. So for those of you who aren't into literature or aren't necessarily music theorists, um, everybody's been on a car ride, right? Um, So this past summer, usually my car rides are are, um, to the tune of multiple... Uh, rhythms and versions of are we there yet Um, I've got four kids and uh, that's usually what long car rides are like for me Um, but but they can be exhausting even though you're not physically exerting energy in a long car ride you can get out from a long car ride and be like oh man I'm just spent Um, 
often we're so interested in getting from point A to point B on a time crunch that we miss the scenic overlooks in a journey. What if we saw the journey as the goal rather than the destination? And perhaps the destination might even be more desirable if we would slow down to fully experience the journey. So from my life this summer, a specific example, uh, my wife and I attended uh, a retreat, a Christian retreat at Lake Tahoe, and we flew into San Francisco, and we took a detour, a three-hour detour, three or four-hour detour to go and try and visit uh, Yosemite National Park. And uh, we were feverishly trying to make it into the park and find a parking place because we'd heard all the, the horror stories about trying to find parking and actually get to see anything in Yosemite in peak season. And we were there in peak season. So we were rushing, 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 rushing. And there was a specific scenic overlook that we missed on the way in. Again, we got in. We were able to spend an hour or two just kind of looking at the vistas, the waterfalls. It was beautiful. Uh, I... I uh, may lose a little man point or two here, but when we got in there, I totally wept like a baby. Uh, it was so, so beautiful. I was just kind of overcome, overtaken by it all. It was kind of one of those, like, the doors open, you see your bride kind of moments. It was definitely the fingerprints of the eternal groom all over that place. Um, but anyway, we were rushing, 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 and we missed this one, one spot. And then on our way out, uh, we'd even bypass, and I was like, no, we're going to have to go turn around and go back, and this was it. This is tunnel view, and this picture really doesn't do it justice, and in the very middle there is this beautiful waterfall. Um, this was taken on my iPhone. This is not a postcard, but this is the image of Yosemite that often makes it on the postcard, and had we not literally turned around to go back and stop, we would have completely missed out on this, and I say all that to, to note that Pausing and stilling provide experiences of beauty that inspire exaltation. As literature, music, and long car rides are made beautiful and moving with introduction of pauses, so can our busy, distracted lives be made richer and more beautiful with the introduction of pause in prayer and communion with the God of the universe. The problem much of our hurried life lacks pause and stillness, as in literature, our lives are a series of run-on sentences. We are connected improperly to others and to the divine and not held together as we ought to be. Much of our life lacks the pause to interrupt our disordered and overlapping distractions and busyness that muddy and disorder our priorities, making lives more like white noise rather than rhythmic, rich, and moving. Uh, perhaps as in a long car ride, we're making it from point A to point B, but we're missing the depths and beauty of the pauses along the way on the journey. Sometimes to know stillness, as David mentioned in his psalm that we started with this morning, we need to know what it isn't. The opposite of stilling, pausing, and being in God's presence is busyness, distraction, and doing. Deadly doing. There's a hymn, an old hymn, that says, lay your deadly doing down. Sorry. Distraction and doing that leads to weariness, burnout, and burden lifting. Now, that's heavy stuff. I've been chewing on this all week. It's heavy stuff. So I'm just going to read something comforting from Jesus because those things that aren't still weary us out and burden us. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus says, come, come to me, all, that you, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I will give you stillness. I will give you pause. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So just chew on that. 
as you kind of chew on the other things that we've discussed so far. Ronald Rollheiser has this to say. He says, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within, which is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these things. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness and distraction and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Ouch. (laughs) That's definitely not an amen moment. That's an ouch moment. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. What feeds our distracted and busy living? From nearly the dawn of time, literally man has been trying to encapsulate time, grasping at a way to control it. Again, from Eden on, our goal has been control. Our goal has to be, been to be our God in our own power, executing our own will. Stillness, being still, is us choosing to yield to something so much bigger than we are. Our lack of stillness is antithetical to how God inhabits time. He's unbound by it. So often when we try to superimpose our human definitions of time on a God unbound by time and pencil him into our schedule when he exists within and without our schedule, even with the busyness of the creation of the cosmos, universe, plants, animals, and man, the epitome of the creation story as we know it is culminated in the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day of being still. So to better articulate what Rollheiser referred to as a number of historical circumstances blindly flowing together, I'm going to go through a quick history on the evolution of our busy, non-still lives here and our attempt to fill our time to the brim. Buckle up. The earliest sundial can be dated back to approximately 200 B.C., In 6th century A.D., Benedictine monks fashioned the first mechanical clock that was focused on their seven daily prayer times. Now we fast forward to the late 1300s in Germany when the first public clock tower was erected in Cologne. We still at this point don't have electricity, and even though we can define our time, our workday is still limited by the amount of sunlight that is available. Fast forward again to the 1800s when we started to proverbially burn both ends of the rope in the Industrial Revolution and workaholism was born, first in Great Britain, then later in the U.S., and on to 1879 when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and boom. We're no longer limited to how much daylight time in which we had to squeeze in work. We can be busy. We can busy ourselves all day and all night with artificial light. 1893, two bicycle mechanics, Charles Duria and J. Frank, designed the first successful American gasoline automobile in Springfield, Massachusetts. 
And as technology advanced into the 1900s, many more time-saving devices were invented, such as washing machines, dryers, dishwashers, toasters, coffee pots. There were a faction of futurists in the 1960s who thought that we would be working way less hours thanks to time-saving devices. They predicted that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours per week for 27 weeks out of the year. They thought the main problem of the future would be too much leisure time. Would they ever be surprised? So what did we do with all the time that was afforded us by our time-saving devices? We filled it. And not necessarily with bad things, but wall-to-wall and brimming with neutral things or even good things, leaving no room or margin to encounter and experience the best thing, the presence of the living God. Now, fast forward to 2007. Anybody, what major technological advancement dropped in 2007? iPhone. Steve Jobs released the iPhone. Now we can busy ourselves all day and all night at a global level, and we can keep that all in our pocket. We can communicate with our coworkers, bosses, etc., and they can communicate with us 24-7. There is no protected time anymore. Then we insert social media, and distraction grows from there. The average iPhone user, and this is data from pre-2018, pre-pandemic, so I'm sure it's grown. The average iPhone user touches, and sorry for you Android users, I'm glad you're here at church. Um, uh, The average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times per day. Another study found that just being in the same room as our phones, even if turned off, will reduce someone's working memory and problem-solving skills. Social media activates the dopamine pathway. In our brains, the likes and the like buttons stimulate this to be released, perpetuating this addictive process similar to that of cocaine. If, if not even, if, if we don't want to say we're addicted to our phones, we can at least fall under the classification of compulsive behavior to check our phones to satisfy our FOMO. Anybody familiar with what FOMO is? Fear of missing out, right? That wasn't a term 20 years ago. Now it is. Uh, we have to make sure we're checking our accounts and, and all that good stuff. Um, I love this this study. It's one of my favorites. So in 2000, they'd done studies on what our attention spans were. Our average attention span in 2000 was 12 seconds. After the digital revolution of 2007, our attention span has dropped to eight seconds. Now, my question for you, does anybody want to guess what the attention span of a goldfish is? Nine seconds. We are losing to goldfish, people. Uh, Now, I'm sure there are lots of things that play into that. I don't want to distort your view and opinion of it. But 2007 was a big year for us. Absolutely. Of course, now everybody in this room thinks I'm an old, tech-hating fuddy-dud. Absolutely not. Technology can be redeemed for so much good, it can broaden access to God's words and the teachings of Jesus. I would invite us, much like our Amish and Mennonite brothers and sisters, to have a healthy suspicion of technology and weigh its ramifications and take a spiritual self-inventory to ensure that our technology is not consuming our attention that would be better directed heavenward. I like to think that busyness and distraction are problems that are unique to our culture and time, but as with many things, the medium changes, but the message is the same. Busyness and distraction are not new problems. Busyness and distraction have been consistent throughout history from the time of David to present. We need not practice what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery 
and think it a problem unique to our time and place. Clearly, David's words were canonized and made available to our hands for a reason. Psalm 46, we see David reminding himself and others that it's in the stillness, in the slowing and stilling that we know God. In the speed, hustle, and hurry, we lose connection to the God of the universe. Although David likely didn't have a smartphone buzzing in his tunic, keeping him busy and alerts notifying him, vying for his attention, he was a king in a feuding tribal society, and at any given moment, his reign could be overturned, his life could be taken, and the Philistines could show up at the gate ready to fight. He had a kingdom to manage, and kingdoms, much like businesses and cities, always need direction, attention, and management. He was a father. He was a husband. He was a military leader. He was a king. And I'm sure that some subject was always vying for his attention, his opinion, and his guidance. He knew as a busy, busy king that stillness was important and necessary to fuel and energize his ability to maintain his connection to God through which everything he was able to do was fueled by. This prayer This song of David summarizes the two points of today's sermon. Be still and know God. Rather than seeing these as simultaneous occurrences, I invite you to regard them as sequential. Be still, then know God. One requiring the other to exist. Just as many of our prayers are shaped by our experience, many of David's psalms are shaped by lore of the past and the story and experiences of the Israelites. For example, Psalms 106 and 77 allude to the parting of the Red Sea. And I have to think that when David pens, be still and know that I am God, he thinks back to the moments prior to crossing the Red Sea. Let's read Exodus 14, 10 through 14, where I surmise that David got his inspiration for these words. Now, just a bit of context here before we get into the scripture passage. The Israelite people led by Moses have been in bondage as slaves to the Egyptians for 430 years. It's God's plan to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians with Moses at their helm. Now, God sent the plagues upon Egypt, and following the plagues, the Egyptians cave, and they're like, oh, get these guys out of here. We don't want any more of this. And after the Israelites are released, Pharaoh changes his mind as he has no more laborers to build his pyramids. And so he, he pursues the Israelites as they flee toward the promised land. Now, I would like to note, though, God has not clearly spelled out the exact steps and plans to their escape to freedom. He expects their faith and reveals only one step at a time. This scripture comes in the wilderness just before the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 10 through 14. NIV. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
Can you believe that in verse 12 here, the Israelites say it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert? These individuals have literally been forced to nonstop busy building pyramids for 430 years, and now they're so close to liberation they can taste it, and they want to go back to forced busy. It was not God's plan for them, but it was easier than having faith. It was comfortable torment. It was predictable and theoretically safe. Our constant return to busy looks a lot like this. But you need only to be still. For 430 years, their identity has been slave labor. Since they can't immediately see their identity as liberated, so they revert to an identity of busyness. We wear our busy, much like they did, as a badge. So often in our salutations and the hey, how are yous, good or bad or indifferent has been replaced with busy. Busy has become our identity as busy was their identity. Busy has become who we are. It's likely that David knew that being still would be a challenge. In Psalm 23, he pens, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He didn't pen, I naturally lie down in green pastures without prompting, out of my own free will and volition. I naturally gravitate towards stillness and still waters, and my soul is restored. David knew, even at his time of writing, that stillness wouldn't naturally come to us, but that the Lord would have to lead us into it and help us find the stillness in which he speaks to us. It's also likely that God knew that being still would be a challenge as he demonstrated being still by resting on the seventh day and then commanding that we remember the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day of stillness, and keep it holy. Now, I want us to use our microscope to focus in on the words in the Scripture passage that just seem kind of weird and out of place. Selah. I'm letting there be a long, awkward pause for a reason. Because most most biblical scholars feel like that's what Selah resulted in. Selah was a moment that was placed in the Psalms to pause and reflect on the words that surround it. Selah. And it's an important word because David uses Selah in the Psalms 71 times. If somebody says something 71 times, it's clearly something that's important. I invite you to find your Selah. It's not only in the stillness that God speaks, but God speaks stillness. God speaks Selah. As we see in the prophet Elijah's experience, as he flees from Jezebel and Ahab after they hear he has slain all of their pagan prophets in 1 Kings, his expectation was to encounter the Lord in a big, bold, and loud way. He found that it wasn't in wind or earthquake or fire that God spoke, but it was, as the King James Version translates, a still, small voice. So if you're busy and hurried and unstill, you may miss God's voice. One of the greatest barriers to Selah are moments of stillness 
is our enemy, the devil, and his constant noise in our head and our heart. His incessant chatter and whispering of deceptive ideas such as get a little more accomplished, get a little more done. You need to check that off your to-do list before stopping. You don't need a break. Breaks are for the weak. Deceptive ideas planted in our minds and hearts by the enemy distort and displace our desires, and our distorted desires are normalized in our sinful, busyness-ridden society. C.S. Lewis wrote an allegorical ode to the subtleties of the enemy and his deception and his use of distraction in his Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters were written in 1941 in the midst of the hustle and bustle of World War II. And each letter is from a demon named Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape. And he is writing to his nephew who is functioning on earth. His nephew's name is Wormwood. And he is on earth trying to tempt people and pull them to the enemy. I'm going to read you one, an excerpt of one of these letters, but I want to give you some context. So when screw tape refers to the enemy, his enemy would be God. And when they refer to a patient, that's how they see us. We are, are the project. We are the patient of the, of the devil. And so he writes this. As this condition becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptation. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, for that is what habit fortunately does to a pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that least he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong, and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, in the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers and kicking of heel, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. Pay attention here. You will say these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, separate the man from God. 
It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light, God, and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So I know that was long, but I invite us all not to be a patient of dear Uncle Screwtape, but a conscientious objector, a rebel, if you will, rebelling against the noise and hustle that our culture thrives and burns out on. James 4, 7 urges us to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And there is no greater resistance of the devil than to find our Selah, to find our stillness, because in the stillness is where we know and submit ourselves to God. Corey Ten Boom, the Holocaust survivor, had this to say. She said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. John Mark Comer, pastor, author, says, but read the Bible. Satan doesn't show up as a demon with a pitchfork and a gravelly smoker voice or as Will Ferrell with an electric guitar and fire on Saturday Night Live. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Today, you're far more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible or a multi-day Netflix binge or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram, or a Saturday morning at the office, or another soccer game on Sunday, or a commitment after commitment in a life of speed. John Ortberg says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we'll renounce our faith. It's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. I invite us to seek the Lord to help us find our Selah, our stillness, so that we can intentionally carve out space to commune with the Father. Selah is our antidote to hurried busyness. As we kind of bring things to a close, I want to tell a story uh, about my kids. We went to the beach uh, a couple of years ago, and I'll never forget. And there are some really, really aggressive seashell lookers early in the morning. If you guys have been out there, it's the ladies who probably power walk back home, um, but they are armed with fanny pack and two like grocery bags and some mean elbows. Like they are out there getting it. Um, and so my kids were really, really wanting to get some good shells one morning. So I took them out early. And, uh, and, uh, these mean memals were out there throwing their elbows, you know. Uh, and but my kids, they weren't looking. I mean, they, they were expecting to find these conch shells, these big, beautiful conch shells. And um, and they kept picking up these. And of course, I forgot to bring bags. We didn't have any grocery bags at the condo or wherever we were staying. And they kept filling their hands with these little broken, measly shells uh, that were pretty worthless. And they were kind of getting discouraged and kind of fed up. And, um, and so they would come to me and their hands would be full. I had nowhere to put these at all. Uh, Meemaw definitely wasn't giving any of her bags up. And uh, she might have elbowed one or two of my kids. I don't know. 
she was aggressive out there. Um, but I remember one of the kids having a handful of broken shells and a starfish washed up. And that was super duper cool. But their hands were so full of little broken, measly pieces of shell that they couldn't even interact with the starfish. And I think, you know, just like I've said, Jesus uses our kids a lot to teach us things, and he certainly uses mine to teach me a lot of things. But I had to kind of take a step back and look and be like, are my hands filled? Is my schedule filled with things that are life-giving? Or is it filled with just pieces of broken shell? Things that won't last, things that aren't meaningful. That really got me. I was like, well, thanks, God. Here we are at the beach out with me and me, Ma, and you're teaching me things. Leave it to the Lord to do that. Uh, and me and me, Ma's, they're pretty, pretty entertaining, if nothing else. Um, but I wonder this morning, are your hands full of things that aren't lasting, that aren't life-giving? Um, is your schedule full of things that aren't meaningful or life-giving? And there's this starfish out there in front of you. Maybe there's this prayer time out there in front of you. This time with God in the presence of the creator of the world. It's out there in front of you just waiting for you, but your hands are full and you can't grab it. Be still. That's the key. Be still. Rebel against the hustle. Rebel against the busyness. The whispers from the devil that there's just one more task that needs to be done before you spend time in God's presence. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you find stillness. It doesn't come naturally. Invite the Holy Spirit to help you find that stillness. Invite Him to make you lie down in green pastures and, and, and help you find the still waters in life to restore your weary, busy, burdened soul. Resist the enemy with your stillness knowing, full knowing, that He will flee from you. Free yourself to say no to good things and neutral things to say yes to the best thing. My campus minister, minister gave me some of the best advice in college that stuck with me. The quantity of your no affects the quality of your yes. And know that I am God. The Apostle John wrote in his gospel, chapter 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And per David, it's through stillness that we encounter the true God and Jesus whom he, whom he sent. And per John, in knowing God, that's where we find eternal life in opposition to the pre-programmed eternal death that's default in our sinful nature. It's no wonder that the enemy will go to great deceptive lengths to steal us away from knowing God. Knowing God personally is eternal life. The enemy desires nothing but eternal death and torment for us all. I want to finish the verse. I am exalted through the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. It's in the stillness then knowing God that he is exalted among nations and exalted in the earth. Here, even David was praying that in our being still and knowing God is how heaven invades earth. 
as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through being still and knowing God, that is how the Lord of hosts is with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Being still is how we know him and knowing him is eternal life. My question for you today is, do you know him? I invite you to be still, find your stillness, that you may know him and know eternal life. Selah. Caleb's going to play and sing. We're going to have a short response song. Um, And I just invite you, again, we're giving you the time to find stillness. Be still. And my ardent prayer for you today is that you know God. You guys stand. Lord, we're so glad to have been in your presence today. And God, I beg, help us all find that still place. Help us break through busyness and distraction so that we may yield to your spirit and know you. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.